imagine with me, if you will, a cold night in Bethlehem. Animals in the stable and the cries of a young woman are heard. And as she cries in pain, a baby drops into the trembling hands of a man named Joseph. And as he holds this little baby, the most incredible thing is taking place. A man like no other. A child like no other is being born. A child who, though crying and hungry, cold, is a creator of the heavens and earth. Imagine with me sitting by a rock uh, next to the Sea of Galilee, perhaps one early morning, and you hear the footprints, the, the sound of feet walking by. And as you look up, you see a man walking along the side of the lake. And you tingle as you see just this man that looks like any other ordinary man. Except this one's different. He's like no other. He's both God and man. The Bible says in John chapter 1 and verse 14, just so simply, so the word became human. Some versions say, so the word became flesh, just to make it clear, you know, and lived here on earth amongst us. So the word became human. This is such a mystery, isn't it? It's staggering. And we sort of ask, how can it possibly be that God became a man? Did he become less than God when he became a man? Was he kind of like a, a superman that all of a sudden was able to do incredible things at one time and yet at other times he seemed weak? How can we understand that what it was like, Jesus being like no other. Well, do you know the, the whole thinking around the fact that God would be God and man in one person has been wrestled and argued and thought about right uh, down the ages. And this morning, if you had a, a late night or, or something, just plead with you, keep in gear now, because this is going to be a bit challenging. But for the next time, we're just going to have a look at some of the different things that people have said. You know, one, one, ver one uh, sort of solution to how this can possibly be was um, brought together in, in a, a form of thinking called Apollinarianism. And uh, this view of Apollinarianism is that Christ um, and, and humanity, that, that the one person of Christ had a human body, but not a human mind or spirit. And that the mind and spirit of Christ were from the divine nature. And that his uh, body, though, was from the human nature. 
And this is how it could be represented in a, in a, view, in a kind of view. This is what he would say. The two kind of game together, the human body and the divine nature. And that's how Jesus was when he walked this earth, I would say. This is Apollinarianism. And, and Apollinarius, he was a, a bishop in Laodicea in about AD 361. And this is what he taught, that uh, one, the one person of Christ had a human body and a divine nature. That's how he separated it. But his views were, were rejected early by the leaders of the church at that time because they realised that it's not just our human body that needed salvation. And uh, for Christ to be fully human, it wasn't just his body that had to be human. He also had to have a human uh, mind and spirit in order to, to save us. Christ had to be fully human and truly human if he was to save us. And, you know, this is what it says in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17. Therefore, it was necessary for Jesus to be in every respect like us, not just the body, but all of, all of Jesus had to be completely human. Um, his so that his brothers and sisters, like his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. He could then offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of people. Apollinarianism, the view, was rejected. It was rejected by several church councils, from the Council of Alexandria, which was in 362 AD, and from the Council of Constantinople, which was 381. So he was a first kind of thing that tried to explain how this person, Jesus, could be together. Another view that came up was one called um, Nestorianism. Nestorianism. And this um, doctrine held that there were two separate persons in the one person of Christ, a human person and a divine person. And this was a, a teaching um, that, that is completely opposed to what uh, the Bible teaches. Uh, it, it's, it's right away from what the scripture says, because Jesus is one person, not two persons. Um, Nest Nestorius, he was a, a popular preacher at Antioch. And he, he lived in around 428 AD. And he was a, a bishop at Constantinople. And, you know, when they talk about this kind of view, many people doubt whether he actually even held these views himself. But at the time when he was the bishop, there were lots of people that were politically didn't like him too much and they kind of really, you know, were against him. And personal conflicts happened where he ended up being attributed to this kind of doctrine. And then I don't, he never really even really taught it. But then once they attributed this to him, they condemned him and, uh, for being a heretic and he was thrown out of his office. But the reason that the actual view was uh, rejected was because nowhere in the whole Bible have we any indication that the human nature of Christ was acting as an independent person, you know, deciding to do something different or opposing from the divine nature of Christ. Never do we see uh, the divine person and the human person in the one person of Christ doing different things, opposing things. No, they're always uh, working together. Um, 
nowhere do we have an, an example of the human and divine natures talking to each other, you know, or uh, struggling within Christ. Instead, we find something quite different. Uh, in the Bible, we see Jesus uh, talking and refer him, referring to himself as one person, one whole, a whole person, a unity, all in one. So he doesn't say uh, when he speaks about himself, um, he, he always says, he says, I am the bread of life. Not we are the bread of life. You know, my human person and my divine person. And when the biblical writers refer to Jesus, they say, uh, he, not they. So clearly, this view of there being two persons in, in Christ, uh, it was right to be rejected. And therefore, the church uh, continued to insist that Jesus was one person, although possessing both a human nature and a divine nature at once. So a third uh, view came up, and this is called uh, monophysicism. Uh, I asked Mandy to pray for me when I said that. Are you praying, honey? Uh, monophysitism. That's what it's called. And obviously the word comes from mono, meaning one, and uh, physis, meaning nature. So one nature. And uh, what this explanation is about, uh, who the primary advocate of this view was Eutychus, in um, AD 378 to 345 was when he lived, uh, 454, uh, he was a leader of a monastery in Constantinople and Eutychus taught that it was kind of the opposite of the previous one we're talking about, Nestorianism. For he denied that the human nature and the divine nature in Christ remained fully human and fully divine. He said instead of two persons, they, they, they weren't both either. They were sort of together, combined in, in one nature. So uh, he, he held rather than the human nature of Christ, um, what happened was it was, uh, instead of it being taken up and absorbed into the, it was sort of taken up and absorbed, the both, into the one nature. So they became one. So that both natures were kind of changed somewhat by this gathering together of the two. And a third nature resulted, which was different from the two, but a new nature. <coughs> An analogy, a way we can understand this is, is just like this. If I have a glass of water and here I've got food dye, water, pure water, food dye, and I put it in together, now what I have here is neither water nor food dye, do I? It's kind of a combination of the two in the one. And you couldn't say that was pure water, could you? And you couldn't say it was pure food diet. And so this is what um, the, the teaching of uh, monophysitism, <laughs> no, monophysitism. <laughs> I'm just going to stop. <laughs> but, but what it said was in the same way, when Jesus came, he was neither fully human nor fully man, but he was something which was a new nature in the person of Christ. Um, what, this was rightly rejected, wasn't it? 
I mean, it's, it's true that this can't possibly be. And it caused great concern in the church when this kind of teaching was, was going about because um, it, it really strikes against the truth that the Bible teaches that God was fully God, uh, Jesus was fully God and he was fully human. And in this view, it's saying he was neither. He was kind of a compromise of the two. Uh, he was neither truly God nor was he truly human. And if that's so, then... It, Jesus really couldn't truly represent man and he couldn't really truly represent God. And if he wasn't truly man, then he couldn't die on our behalf. And if he wasn't God, then he couldn't earn our salvation. So this was rejected. The solution to all the discussions and the arguments, you still with me, everybody? Great. The solution came when uh, there was kind of a discussion and a definition put forward at a, at a church council meeting where uh, lots of church leaders and, and uh, people came together to discuss and debate what they felt the Bible really said about the person of Christ. And what happened at um, Chalcedon in Constantinople in uh, AD 451, there was a statement that they put out. And this statement guarded against Apollinarianism and Nestorianism and Monophysicism. That was good. I think I got it that time. <laughs> and this statement that they came out with has been the standard orthodox definition ever since that time, 400, uh, in the 400s AD. And it's been held by uh, the Catholics, the Protestants and the Orthodox churches alike. And this view begins like this. It says, following the Holy Fathers, we teach with one voice that the Son of God and our Lord Jesus Christ is to be confessed as one and the same person, that he is perfect in Godhead and perfect in manhood, very God and very man, of a reasonable soul and human body consisting substantial with the Father as touching his Godhead and substantial with us as touching his manhood, made in all things like unto us, sin only accepted, begotten of his father before the worlds according to his Godhead. And it goes on and on. But basically, th th this statement affirms that there was, there's one person, the person of Christ, with two natures, divine and human, existing in one unity person of Christ. He's both fully God and fully man. This can be explained in this kind of diagram here, where you have uh, Father, Son and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, the person of Christ, the divine nature and the human nature. And this is how it exists. This is what they affirmed at... Uh, this uh, church council gathering. Now, if we kind of affirm this to be true, that, that in the person of Christ there is both God, fully God and fully man in the one, what are some of the things that, that really affect us today or, or things that we can affirm together as we look at this? Well, the first thing is that um, the incarnation, it seems, you know, the incarnation, uh, God becoming man, uh, was more um, about God gaining human attributes 
than a giving up of the divine attributes. You know, we looked in the passage uh, before um, from Philippians chapter 2 and verses 6 to uh, Philippians chapter 2 and verses 6 to 7. And many um, people have looked at this and said, well, this is evidence, these passages, that Jesus actually emptied himself of his deity. You know, he, he emptied himself of who he was when he became, came to earth. So it says, though he was God, he did not demand and cling to his rights as God. He made himself nothing, emptying himself, some translations say. He took the humble position of a slave and appeared in human form. So some people think this verse showed that Jesus actually emptied himself of some of his divine attributes at this point when he came to, to earth. Some people said he emptied himself of it all uh, when he came. And um, according to this uh, idea, he became man by becoming something less than God. And it seems that these verses may indicate that he emptied himself of something. He, he made himself nothing. W what does that mean? Well, it seems that um, the incarnation is more um, about subtraction than addition in this quarter time. Like God emptied himself rather than added to himself. And it seems that Jesus didn't empty himself of any divinity. At no point in this scripture does it actually say that he emptied himself of any part of who he was as God. And we'd find scriptures also that absolutely go against that. So, for instance, in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9, it says, For in Christ... The fullness of God lives in a human body. So it can't be saying that. But what does it say? What it does say is that Jesus emptied himself. And I think it says that when it says he became nothing, he became a servant. He emptied himself of his right to be equal with God uh, by becoming a, a servant. He didn't cease to be in nature God at all. Um, he, he was what the Father was, but he became functionally kind of subordinated so, uh, to the Father for the period when he was in, on earth. Um, Jesus did this to reveal who God was like to us and to save mankind. So he didn't empty himself of any of his deity, but he emptied himself of, uh, uh, of his right to be equal with God and became a servant. Now, the second thing that we can kind of grapple with as we get our heads around this is that the union... Uh, of two natures in one person meant that he didn't function independently. Um, Jesus didn't exercise like his God, God, God divine nature um, separate um, uh, from his humanity. So it wasn't like sometimes he was exercising his godly nature and then sometimes his human nature. His actions were always that of the God man, you know, who, together in one, a unified person. Still with me? <laughs> kind of. Good. Uh, but it's a, a key to really understanding the, the uh, kind of limitations that Jesus had um, on, imposed of him because he took upon himself uh, uh, humanity. For example, he still had that power to be everywhere, omnipresent while he was on earth. However, as and a human being, he was limited in the exercise of that power because he had a human body. Uh, similarly, he was all-knowing. He knew everything. But he also possessed and exercised his knowledge in connection with the fact that he had a human brain which grew gradually 
in terms of his understanding and his consciousness in his life. Whether um, because of the whether this was because he he grew in understanding his in physical environment as he grew in his understanding of with his human mind or also whether he understood more as he grew about eternal truths because his mind was growing as a human's mind continues to develop therefore only gradually did his limited uh, human psyche become aware of who he was and what he'd come to accomplish you know yet this uh, this kind of it shouldn't be considered as a reduction of his power. It doesn't mean he's less than God just because of that. It just means that um, it's still fully as the second person of the Trinity, separate from uh, Christ incarnate, he still had all those capabilities, but rather his circumstances were limited because he'd become, he'd taken on a human uh, body, a humanity. And so he was limited in the exercise of his power because of that. Let me explain, because we, we need a clear practical example here, don't we, for just a moment. Uh, if you, I'm the fastest runner in the world, okay, as you all know I am. <laughs> and if uh, I choose to get somebody else up and tie their leg to mine, and we ran together, I'm going to be a lot slower than I would be, but I'd still be the fastest man in the world, runner in the world, right? But because I'm choosing to tie myself to somebody else, I'm severely limited in that because I'm running with them, but I'm still the fastest person in the world. So I haven't lost any of my status of who I am. That's a little bit of what it was like for, for God when he was, he was still fully God and fully able to do all those things. And yet because he was he'd taken upon himself humanity, uh, became uh, the, the person of Christ was therefore exercising voluntarily with a limit, you know, limited in the way that he chose. It's like a boxer who's got his arm behind his back and you know, just boxing one time is still might be a fabulous boxer, but he's choosing to go like that. So Jesus uh, was like a, and he could easy, this runner could easily take that off and run at any time and, and do that, but was choosing, would be choosing to do that. And Jesus chose to take on humanity so that he could save us, so that he could show us what God is like and so that he could come and fulfil, uh, that we could be, become uh, saved. So just one more thing uh, when we're thinking about the implications of it. His humanity, uh, you know, sometimes we think about God and we think, oh, how could God ever be a man, a, a human? You know, God is, you know... Um, from the very beginning of time and there's no ending to God and how could he come and be a human? But the problem is that we often think about this in terms of uh, our own understanding of us as human beings. You know, we think, I know what I'm like. I know how I'm sinful. I know how I'm, you know, uh, and how could God live in a body like mine and how could he be a human like me? Well, Jesus wasn't really like us in that respect. See, we've never seen a human being who's completely sinless. I mean, we, we read about them, Adam and Eve, before the fall, and we see what they were like. But Adam and Eve uh, were, not, uh, were perfect before the fall. So when we look at Christ, although we say he's human, uh, fully human, it's not kind of just like us. It's kind of like 
He's the perfect human. The, 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 the total perfect human without sin. And so uh, when we look at him, we see what God really meant us to be like. Uh, when we look at Jesus and we open up the pages and we see, we see a perfect human being living as God had created human beings to, to be. And then we see what he really had in mind for us. And it's incredible. But the tr- same is also tr- true because John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God, the only Son, but, but the only Son who is in the bosom of the Father has made him known. This is John 1.18. And, and what it's saying is, when we look at Jesus, not only do we see the perfect man, but we see God. We can look at Jesus and we see what God is like. He's the one who's revealed to us who God is really like. So every time you focus in on Jesus, you see who God is like, as well as who you as a human being, perfect, to become like. God wants us to become more and more like. So why would Jesus come to earth? Why would he be born and take upon himself humanity for us? This is what Ansel said about that, Ansel. He said, it would not have been right for the restoration of human nature to be left undone. And it could not have been done unless man paid what was owing to God for sin. But the debt was so great that while man alone owed it, only God could pay it. So that the same person must be both man and God. Thus it was necessary for God to take manhood into the unity of his person. So that he who is his own nature, who he in, in his own nature ought to pay and could not, should be in a person who could. The life of this man was so sublime, so precious, that it can suffice to pay what is owing for the sins of the whole world and infinitely more. Jesus was like no other. He was like no other because he was sinless. He was the spotless lamb of God. You remember when he walked uh, the earth, John the Baptist looked at him and said, there, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Why could he take away the sins of the world? Because he had not sinned himself. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So the one who had never sinned, who was fully spotless, was put to death on the cross so that you and I, who are sinful, can become spotless, forgiven through what he did. You know, you couldn't have just an ordinary man doing that because ordinary men... And women sin. 
And they couldn't be the spotless lamb of God. Only a man like no other, only one like no other, Jesus could do that. Uh, see, we were the ones that had wronged God. And we needed someone who was a man to die in our place. God couldn't just die because he hadn't done anything wrong. So it had to be someone who was a man who had sinned to pay the price. But only God could save us because man cannot save ourselves. So we needed a God. We needed God to save us. And Jesus was like no other. He was both God and man. Therefore, he could save us. And he did. And he died on the cross, paying perfectly for our sin. And he rose again with great power, conquering death and conquering sin and providing life for all who will call upon him. And this morning, the words that come out so clearly in Hebrews 2 and verse 17 come to us today. Therefore, it was necessary for Jesus to be in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. He could then offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of his people. So this morning, I want to ask you, who do you say? that Jesus is? Who do you say that he is? Because if you affirm that he is both fully God and fully man in the one person, then there's kind of only one response that you can make today. And that's to recognise that he's the only way that you can have a relationship with God. Because what he said is true. John 14, 6. I'm the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The only way that you can have a relationship with God is not just believing in the historical Jesus, but by coming to him as your Lord and Saviour, putting your faith and trust in him and having a relationship with the living God. Sin stops you from doing that. Sin stops you from having a relationship with God. But the truth is that Jesus was like no other and he's paid the full price for your sin. All you need to do is accept that by faith and come to know this one like no other. Jesus, as he walked, said, come follow me. Come follow me. Our church is not just a group of people that believe a lot of good things. We're not even just a group of people that try and just do the right thing in society and be great citizens. Our church is made of those that believe wholeheartedly that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died on the cross in our place, both fully God, fully man, and it's only through him that we can be forgiven that we can be made whole and right. Jesus still calls out today and he says, come follow me. Have you followed him? Have you come to the point where you've put your trust in Jesus Christ and said, I want to worship you. I want to accept your forgiveness. I want to become your child. 
If you haven't, I'm just going to give you a chance right now to do that. It's just a simple prayer and we'll pray that now. And uh, if you have, then recognise that Jesus, the Jesus that you know and the Jesus that you love, understands you. He's walked this earth. He knows your hard times. He knows the, the struggles that you go through. But he also has the power to help you through every situation. And he's secured your future. If you like to ask Jesus into your life, why don't we pray together? Let's all pray in this time. And you might.